Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is the journalist and author Marcus Berkman. A freelance journalist for over 30 years, he's written for The Spectator, The Daily Mail, The Daily Express, The Independent, and many others. Marcus's book, How to Be a Writer, delineates the ups and downs of his writing career from financial crises to ear-deafening concert reviews to boozy parties at The Spectator. The book does exactly what its title promises, offering an informed opinion on how and how not to be a writer. In his own words, Marcus's 13th or possibly 14th book, he offers a candid, humorous and unfiltered view into the often glamorised but also tough lives of writers today. Marcus Bertman, welcome to Monica Reads. Hello. It's so lovely to have you. And this book is is written in such a very accessible way. One feels like one's sitting there just having a a chat with you. Yeah, well, quite. I mean, that's that was always the intention. It started off as a completely different book. It started off as a sort of greatest hits of journalism because a friend of mine who's a very eminent writer, he said he'd, he'd considered doing a greatest hits of journalism and then he'd read all of his old journalism and he thought, no, this is all rubbish. <laughs> so he'd, he'd part that idea and I'd sort of put it in my head and I thought that might be a good thing to do one day. So I started that and I had exactly the same reaction, which was reading all my old stuff and thinking, well, you know, it was all right for the time, but now it lies on the page like a dead dog. <laughs> um, and so it, it sort of mutated into a into a memoir, really, of my 34 years as a freelance writer. And because I've been there and I've met loads of people, I've been there, you know, I've I've just, I've been around, you know, uh, and I've been to lots of parties and I've met loads of people and I've, it's been an interesting time to be a writer and quite lucrative at times and other times very unlucrative. But, you know, I'm still here. I'm still doing it. I'm still writing books, still doing journalism. It seemed to be an interesting thing to do. So I just did it. Uh, and of course, in between all the memoir, you do give us those pieces of journalism. Some of them, as you say, you say, I'm not necessarily agreeing that they are not good pieces of writing. Well, they were OK for the time. Um, some of them were not at all any good for any time, but um, some of them were OK for the time. I mean, I'm quite pleased with the TV reviews and some of the book reviews. But, you know, you, how many TV reviews from the 1990s do you want to read? Not very many, really, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah. in the 1990s, one did want to read them. Yes. Uh, you tell us how you came to be a, a professional writer, because, of course, you studied maths. I did. I did. And I got a double third. Um, I'm very proud of this, um, because a double first is when you get a first in your first year exams, and then you get them in a third. You get a first in your third year exams. I got a third in both, so I always say I got a double third. And um, my tutor actually said to my colleagues in my maths set at the um, finals dinner, which I couldn't go to, and they said, oh, yes, Marcus is one of nature's thirds. And and they thought that that was very amusing and that I would be very insulted and upset, but I felt very proud of that. I thought that was a good thing to be, because I just wasn't any good at maths at all. And um, I think I got in on completely false pretenses. But I enjoyed it, and although I couldn't really do it, uh, I had a lovely time at university, and I met loads of very interesting people and I, you know, I got the most out of it. It's quite a jump, though, from maths to writing, different sides of the brain. No, I would say not, actually. I think I think there's um, writing is all about logical progression and I think to have a, a logical mind as well as a creative mind is very helpful in writing and knowing the language, you know, I mean, we're not really taught grammar at school. I mean, I wasn't particularly. I learnt my grammar through doing Latin and French and you're not really taught it, but you imbibe it you it's by, by osmosis really and then 
once you start writing for a living, you recognise that there is there are certain ways of writing a sentence. I don't know. I think I I think it's a very good training for writing actually maths. Mm. Your first job though was was uh, not writing every day. You've eventually got to, yes. almost by default to to write a, a music column. Yes, I mean I um, my first job was as a PR person for Care Bears and Trivial <laughs> Pursuit. Um, which How do I, you sell Care Bears? Uh, with great difficulty. I mean, it was just trying to get them into newspapers. And I was really bad at that, really bad at that. I'm not very good at selling anything at all. But Care Bears, I don't know if I put this in the book. At one point, they wanted to uh, create a new Care Bear because the Care Bears were doing so well that they wanted uh, the the company who we were doing the PR for uh, wanted to create a new a new Care Bear. And I came up with some really stupid ideas which were completely rejected. And then I thought, right, I'm going to come up with the most disgusting bland, sentimental, soppy, half-witted idea I can come up with. And it was in production within three months. It was, <laughs> it was called Harmony Bear and it had an enormous harp on its stomach. And Harmony Bear was one of their best sellers, and I created it for no money at all. That was almost the only thing I ever did in that company that was successful. And then I had one of my regular spells of unemployment uh, through my life. And then I spent a while writing for a kid's computer magazine about computer games, which was great fun. And you had to write so many words a day that I became quite a quick writer. And then I got the Spectator column, which is, came out through an incredible stroke of good luck, about pop music. And I did that for 28 years, expecting to be fired every, pretty much every week. I thought it was really interesting the way you talk about the, the Spectator column because you're sort of writing as a young fogey. You're writing for the Spectator audience about something that possibly not many of them were very interested in. Well, that's probably true. I mean, the thing is that I started writing that column when I was 27, which was almost at exactly the moment when I began to feel too old to write the column. <laughs> so I wasn't, you know, I mean, I was quite, I was a... I was a young person, obviously, like everyone. I was never a particularly young, young person. I was not a clubber. And I disliked going to gigs. And I just loved pop music. And I still love pop music. I still listen to it every single day while writing, usually. But I got this column through a great stroke of good luck. And I did it once a month for 28 years. And no one ever made any comment about it in the magazine. No one said a thing. And I never met anyone who said, oh, I really love your column, ever. I mean, and and then finally I just thought, well, I was editing a book for The Spectator called The Spectator Book of Wit, Humour and Mischief. And the idea of this was my idea. I came, I wanted to write a book about all the funny things in The Spectator. And there were loads. And I spent several months reading their great binders full of old issues. And along the way, I, I read quite a lot of my old columns. And I just thought, hang on, you wrote this this column you're reading in 2012. You wrote this in 2008. You also wrote it in 2003 and you wrote it in 1995. <laughs> you know, and I just began to feel embarrassed. So I actually resigned the column, which no, one, no journalist ever does. And I resigned the column. And then everyone said, oh, God, we loved that column. That was great. And I slightly regretted it. But it was a good thing to do, really, because I, I, I was very... Very dead on it. Two, 28 years, long time to write about. And, you know, I was 55. Right? I mean, so if I was too old at 27, where was I at 55? <laughs> you talk about how many people there actually are in this country, in Britain, who make their living simply by writing. It's not very many, is it? No, I mean, I sat in a pub with my friends Amanda and Kate, who are both novelists, and we talk about all sorts of stuff, usually invoices and agents and publishers and that useless they all are and publicity people with and yeah we just like all writers just moan incessantly but 
I did actually say, how many people do you think there are in this country who earn their living purely through writing? And we're not talking about corporate writing. We're talking about writing, the sort of stuff that I write, you know, for magazines, newspapers, the occasional book. And I set some rules. I said, there can't be a rich spouse. You can't have another job teaching. You know, you can't have another job purely by writing. And we thought 2,000. And then I thought maybe 1,000. And then we thought 500, 200. I mean, I haven't a clue, but I don't think it's very many. And almost every writer I know has some other means of, of income. Some of them possibly quite criminal as far as I can see but <laughs> they all have something Yeah, I mean if you were to be considering your career options now would you still become a journalist? Well I can't do anything else so the, um, it's yes I mean there's nothing else, I'm, I'm incapable of doing anything but, else but, but what I'm saying is if it were your younger self now knowing what you know about this profession Well I mean I, I, don't, know, I don't know how anyone begins to become a writer other than by writing and then just trying to get it published so often young people say, how did you do it and how, how should I do it? And I just say, I'm not really sure. You know, I did it through several strokes of good luck. And it turned out I had a voice, which I didn't really realise until I'd started. And the voice had some commercial potential. So, you know, I've been able to, to do it. But how anyone would do it now, I haven't a clue. I think it's so hard. I have a friend who's just under 40 and he's been trying to make it as a writer for years and he hasn't really and he's got he's got a nice voice and he's he's clever and he does get occasionally things in somewhere but he's not really made an enormous impact and his wife works as a, a PE teacher and she's the main breadwinner and he's he's the house husband looking after their rather lovely little daughter and there are lots of people like that, I think. So why do you think there is this sort of misconception that writing is so glamorous? Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because it's not. I mean, the point is that there is only one... Uh, I mean, I didn't call it how to write because it's not really about how to write. There's only one rule, which, again, I haven't put in the book, but um, which is, is probably best. Uh, that there is only one rule on how to write, which is bum on seat, fingers on keyboard. <laughs> Sit down, start writing, and then... As you get going, you become better at editing, which is the real skills. You know, anyone can can write, but but it's the editing and being able to... I've got a very good friend who, who didn't really make it as a writer and, and has given up now, and he plays the ukulele for some reason, but that's his own <laughs> severe problem. But he um, he's, he's a good writer, but he's a really poor editor, and he's very, very bad at knowing what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. And he's written some books which didn't need to be written, really, and some of them have been published. And he's just not a very good... He's not. He doesn't have a very good editorial brain mm. or hasn't good editorial judgment. And so he's not really made it, and he's perfectly able to do it. But mm. I'm a really good rewriter. I'm not much of a writer, but... Once it's up down there, then I can shape it and turn into something better. Yeah. I mean, the subtitle of the book is Baths, Biscuits and Endless Cups of Tea. So, I mean, it really, it's about procrastination. <laughs> it's about procrastination to an extent. I think baths are terribly useful. The mid-morning bath has been a staple of my life for more years than I can begin to think of because I start work at ten past eight and the first couple of hours are great. And then about ten o'clock, then I begin to think, hmm... What I'm going to say next, and I don't know. So I have a bath, and I think about it. And I, I say in the book that if you, um, if if I've had a bath and I've washed all my various parts in the order that in which I wash them, but I have no memory of doing that, and I've been thinking about what I'm writing, that's been a good bath because <laughs> because then I can go straight back, and then I've got the next couple of sentences, and I can go on from there. 
You, you say in the book that failure is endemic to the writer's life and how you cope with it will determine whether or not this really is the life for you. How yeah. do you cope? Not very well with it, actually. I mean, there have been a couple of times when... I mean, my first book was successful. It was called Rain Men. It was about village cricket and did very well. And it's still in print and it still ticks over. But the second book was a complete failure. And it took me... It was six years before I published another book. And and a good two of those years, I just spent sitting there feeling miserable, unable to think of anything to do. You know, and um, I spent a while trying to turn the second book into a romantic comedy, which was ridiculous, with a co-writer. And we reached draft 17 before we finally threw, threw in the towel. Draft 9 was considered the best. And then, the, and then we went off a cliff, really, a bit. And so I've had, loads of, I've had loads of books that have done nothing, really very, very few sales. And some have done quite well. So as Andrew and Muller and I were talking about just outside, he was saying it would be great to have a real runaway bestseller, wouldn't it? And I say, God, yes, that's all I, all I really want in my life is a runaway bestseller. There's a book that just sells in enormous quantities for no real reason at all, other than it's obviously good and people like it. But it's not happened yet. But, you know, I mean, that that is such an interesting thing because I do look at some books which I consider to be perhaps mediocre, which are bestsellers. And what is it, do you think? What is that thing that suddenly makes everyone buy a book? That's a very, very good question. I don't really know the answer. I mean, I think a certain amount of celebrity helps. So the Richard Osman Thursday Murder Club things, very much helped by his celebrity and his, you know, he's a, he's on a quiz show every day and he's incredibly tall and very humorous and people like him. So obviously that has helped there. And then it, there's word of mouth. But, you know, I tried to read a Dan Brown book once. Um, in, <laughs> in fact, I read about two-thirds of it for a private eye review which in which I ripped it to shreds. And I felt two-thirds was enough. I mean, it took me about a week or ten days to get that far. And the poor man cannot write. He just cannot write. It's the worst writing you've ever read. But he, he had chanced upon a way of writing a book that obviously had lots and lots of readers, and he's done very well. I have no idea. No one knows. No one has a clue. I mean, this book was a part of a two-book deal I did with the publishers, and the first book I got a very nice advance for, and this one, my advance for, was pitiful, right? And I think they're both good books. They're both quite different. The first book sold almost no copies at all, and this one I think will do quite well. They don't know. They haven't a clue. They don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And I certainly don't. I mean, I never have any idea at all. Um, (laughs) All you can do is your best and hope it works. Let's talk about quizzing, because that's something you've been involved in for many years. In fact, you uh, wrote a a column with Ian Hislop, Dumb Britain. Yes, uh, I've done that for 20 years now. It's in private eye. It's called Dumb Britain. And it's, it's real answers, real stupid answers to quiz questions on radio and TV. You know, when people just say something really stupid. And... People send them in and then I polish them up and I put them in and that's it. And it's very easy work, actually. But the thing is, it's it's a very nice column and a lot of people love it. And these things, there are so many quiz shows on, on radio and TV still. And there are still people answering things really stupidly. And it's magnificent. It's just wonderful. Mm. You also you also do do your own quizzes in, in pubs and online and so yes. on. And you get to a point where you know absolutely everything. No, you never know anything. <laughs> And you make mistakes, you know, you, f- you think, oh, I, I'll check that later, and then you forget, and then you ask a question and someone says, no, 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 the, the National Football Museum isn't in Preston anymore, it's in Manchester, and you think, oh, God, you know, <laughs> I, I should have checked that. And uh, everyone makes mistakes, but 
we have a rule in our pub quiz, which is the quiz master is always right, even when he's wrong, which I quite like, actually, because it's obviously incumbent on everyone to try and get everything absolutely spot on. But just occasionally do make a mistake. But I don't know very much. I mean, I know the stupidest things. I know that there was a... God, what do I know? OK, here's one of my favourites, which was a fiver in Cockney rhyming slang is a Lady Godiva. So why is £15 a Commodore? <laughs> You're looking completely amused <laughs> by that. And the answer is because it's three times a lady. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's one of my all-time favourite questions. That's and I remember hilarious. the first time I asked that in the pub, people just sat there completely bemused. And then you could almost see the light bulbs appear above people's head as they got it. And I think almost every team got it in the end. Um, now, along the way, of course, in this wonderful varied career, you've met so many people, as you said. Yeah. And we're talking, of course, in the week when Boris Johnson's very much in the news. And, of course, he was your editor for a while. He was. I met him a few times. And then he left and went off and did various other things, like being Mayor of London and Foreign Secretary. And then I went to a spectator party again, and, and he's in what used to be his old office upstairs, leaning against the mantelpiece, just showing off and talking. And I walk in, I haven't seen him for six or seven years, and he just says, hello, Marcus, as though it's six or seven minutes since we last spoke. And I just thought that is a skill that I will never have, which is the ability to recognise everyone and make them feel good. And, I mean, that's how he got to where he was. It may not have helped him when he got there, but it's certainly how he got to where he was. But as soon as a, a, a young woman appears, a, um, a comely young woman, he's off like a velociraptor. He's, he's a predator. It's extraordinary to watch. He was literally, he just disappeared because spectators full of luscious young lovelies of a, um, all called Camilla and Caroline. And, and they, they come in and, and he's gone. And that's the last time I saw him, actually. That's 10, 15 years ago, I suppose, now. Yeah. And of course, that, is, that does contribute to the quite sort of louche image of journalism. Well, I mean, none looser than him, certainly. And yes, I'm reading a book, um, I'm rereading Complicity by Ian Banks, which is about a louche hack working on an Edinburgh newspaper. Far more louche than, than I am and far more louche than almost anyone I've ever met. But it's very much along those lines, you know, constantly drinking in airports at 6am. Not that I haven't done that myself, one has to say. But yes, journalism is, is, is a very louche business. And of course, the point is that there, it's because there's so many good parties we don't get paid very much, but we do get to go to some good parties. Absolutely. But what it's really about, as you say in your book, is baths, biscuits and endless cups of tea. It's not all martinis on the terrace. Marcus, this is a wonderful book and I would highly recommend it to anybody who is a writer or not, who just wants to be gently amused and definitely stimulated. By Marcus Berkman, Baths, Biscuits and Endless Cups of Tea is published by Little Brown and it's out now. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer Nora Hull and researcher Maya Renfer. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>